omitted to mention, if you're planning to go to Hogmanay at Lendrick Muir, uh, that's an overnight stay, or even just for the Cayley itself and to bring in the new year, you do need to make a booking. There are a few places left. You cannot just turn up on the evening. Uh, so if you want to make a booking for that, speak to Stuart Sinclair in the lounge today, please, if, if you're planning to go and haven't already booked. Thank you very much. Well, the end of another year is a good time for stock-taking. So, let me ask you, as I ask myself, if you claim to be a Christian this morning and to know God, what kind of progress have you made during 2003? What kind of spiritual progress have you made? We can judge our lives by all sorts of other parameters, whether we're better off financially or our relationships are looking good or bad or whatever, but ultimately the only thing that really counts is our relationship with God. So, how are you doing? What sort of year has 2003 been for you? It's actually very hard to evaluate, particularly because, as the Bible says, the heart is deceitful. And it's hard to make a self-evaluation of where you're actually at. Some of us will be overly optimistic, some of us may be overly pessimistic. So let me put it in broader terms. If you were to draw a graph of your life as a Christian, which trend is reflected on the picture on the screen? Are you heading upwards? Are you going downwards? Or have you kind of plateaued out as a Christian? Uh, this morning... I want to look at the case, a case study of a man who lived 900 years before Christ. He was a king. His name was Asa, A-S-A. And I want to try and chart his spiritual progress because I believe it presents us with a very important challenge, even though it happened all those years ago. For human nature, it doesn't change. So let's start at the beginning of his life, and I want to look at the latter end of his life in a moment. His life began at a very low point. His grandfather, King Rehoboam by name, had inherited from his father, the great King Solomon, a mighty empire, the empire of Israel. But he foolishly provoked a civil war which had torn the country in two. The larger part, the ten tribes in the north, had gone their own way, continuing under the name Israel. All that his grandfather was left with were two tribes in the south centered around Jerusalem. And that kingdom from then on was known as the kingdom of Judah. And along with political decline had come religious decline, with wholesale idolatry and immorality. King Rehoboam was succeeded by his son, that's Asa's father, and he only reigned for three years. But he didn't improve things whatsoever. So when Asa, probably as a very young man, maybe even as a minor, came to the throne, things were in a very sorry state. Things were at a very low ebb. Yet despite this, for some reason, Asa turned things around. A dramatic change took place. He introduced a policy of radical religious reform. He removed the visible signs of idolatry. 
He encourages people to seek the Lord his God, to obey his commands. And along with this, he fortified the towns and cities. The result was an extended period of peace and prosperity. Uh, The writer of the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament records, no one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. So, here he is at the beginning of his reign, starting at a low ebb, and the graph is rising. But then came a crisis. A huge army from North Africa invaded the kingdom. From the south, of course. Crises in a nation or an individual can make you or break you. The crisis was the making of Asa as a king. He cried out to God in his need and said, Lord, we are helpless against this vast army. There is nothing we can do. Lord, we need you. Lord, save us. And God turned things around in a remarkable way. The invaders were decisively beaten and driven back south. And the grass, his spiritual progress, rose to new heights. And a prophet of the Lord came to him with a message of encouragement. This is what he said. Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you will seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And so inspired by this, Asa continued his program of spiritual reform. He destroyed the last vestiges of idolatry throughout the land. He repaired the Lord's temple, the altar in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And then he called a great celebration. He summoned the people together and we read that they entered into a new agreement, a new covenant with the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. He even extended this to his family, deposing his grandmother, the queen mother, who had promoted the idolatry. And everyone in the nation rejoiced. An extended period of prosperity and peace followed. The graph was at an all-time spiritual high. An extended period of peace and prosperity. So, how do you think the story will end? Maybe you've never read this story, we're going to read it in a moment. But even if you have, think for a moment. How do you think the story will end? Asa doesn't know it, he's only got five years left to live. None of us know how many years we've got left to live. Not one of us. He's only got five years to go. How will it end? Which direction will the graph go in from this point? What prediction would you make about the future trend? Surely it will continue to climb higher and higher. Or at least, very least, remain on the same level. That's what you might think. And I want to challenge you this morning about your own spiritual progress as I challenge myself about my own spiritual progress. Surely you say, if you've broken with the past, some of you can look back, maybe even this year, and you've made a new start in your life. You're the first in your family to be a Christian. Or maybe you come from a long line of Christian heritage for which you should be eternally thankful to God. And maybe you've walked with God for many years. I'll have been a Christian, I think it's 43 years in January. Surely if you've experienced God's power in the past. Surely if you've heard his word in Charlotte Chapel or other places and God has spoken to you and things have happened in your life and there are great changes have taken place and God has blessed you and you can look back and praise God for his faithfulness. 
Surely if you've walked with him so long, and he with you, surely the graph can only head in one direction. Surely your story can only end happily. That's what you might think. That's what you might assume. But it does not necessarily follow. And today on this final Sunday of another year, I want to warn you as I warn myself of the danger of spiritual decline. The danger of spiritual decline. Whoever you are, whatever you've done in the past, however long you've worked with God, I want to warn you of the danger of spiritual decline. And I want to look at the record of the final five years of the life of this remarkable king, King Asa. You'll find it in the Bible, and it will help you turn to the Bible, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. That's way back in the Old Testament. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 449. It will help you have a Bible. Page 449. 2 Chronicles 16, and you'll see it's entitled, Asa's Last Years. This is added, of course, by the New International Version translators. You could actually call it Asa's Declining Years. And I want you to look with me at four downward steps at the end of this man's life. Let's read them bit by bit. Here's the first in the opening six verses of the chapter, a reliance on human wisdom. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. King Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timbers Baasha had been using, with them he built up Geba and Mizpah. Now here's the first downward step, which you could describe as a reliance on human wisdom in verses 1 to 6. Although there's been this extended period of peace, there's this tension that has always existed <coughs> between Judah and Israel. And all it takes is something to precipitate a crisis. And a flashpoint comes when King Baasha of Israel advances south and fortifies the town of Ramah, which is just about five or six miles north of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. Uh, a map will come on the screen, and if, if you like maps, it may help you to follow uh, where we're going. We don't know why he did this, but King Baasha was probably afraid that if his people came down to Jerusalem to worship, they might desert his cause and not go back to Israel. This was a serious threat. And it was a particular threat for the people of Judah, because up there in the north, it's on the map, it's very clear on this, on this map, but in the north was the kingdom of Aram, or Syria. And Israel had a treaty with Syria. So here's little Judah in the south, and here's Israel attacking from the north, 
allied with Aram or Syria further up in the northeast corner. All right? So what do you do? Well, Asa adopts a political expedient. He takes some of the silver and gold from the Lord's treasury and from his own wealth, and he sends it to the king of Aram, Syria, and he says, break your treaty with Israel and realign with me. It's a kind of typical political maneuver. This will then relieve the pressure on King Asa and Judah. And King Ben-Hadad accepts the money, and then he starts to attack Israel from Israel's northern border. The result is that King Barsha then withdraws from Ramah, the pressure is taken off, and the king of uh, Judah, Asa, and his men, they go up to Ramah, dismantle the fortifications, and use them to strengthen their own northern defences against future attack. Now, notice something about Asa's strategy. It was completely successful by human reckoning. It was a smart move. It was a political move. But we learn later in verse 9 that the Lord thought very differently about it. Asa's strategy was successful by human reckoning, but it was foolish in the Lord's eyes. We'll read that in a moment in verse 9. Why? Because it showed a man who was reliant, not on God, but on his own wisdom. He showed a lack of faith in God by making an alliance with a foreign heathen power and financing it from the Lord's treasury. Now, we live today in a similar age. It's an age of pragmatism. If it works, must be right. And such thinking also infects churches and Christians. What we need to remember as individuals and as churches is, if it works, it may be right, but if it works, it may be wrong. And it is always wrong if it is at variance with God's will. And this is what happened with Asa. Now you ask yourself as I read this passage, how could a man who had walked so closely with God and been blessed by God over so many years, do such a foolish thing? And the answer is probably because he had walked with God for so many years and enjoyed his blessing. He had come to take it for granted. He had forgotten the reason, the only reason he enjoyed so much prosperity was because of God. It is hard to believe. This is the same man who prayed, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. In your name we've come against this vast army. O Lord, you're our God. Do not let man prevail against you. That's in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. And it is only too easy for such complacency to creep into our own lives. We begin to forget that everything that we have, everything that we are, comes only from God. And so slowly yet subtly, our reliance shifts from the Lord to ourselves. Let me say this very clearly. If you are a Christian and things are going well in your life at the present time, if you are enjoying prosperity as a Christian, be especially on your guard. You are especially vulnerable as a Christian when things are going well. You say, surely no, Pastor, it's when things are going badly, I've got problems. No, no, when things are going badly, that's the time you turn to God. Most of us, anyway. 
most Christians fall away from God, go into spiritual nosedive and decline, although it may be a very gradual glide when things are going well in their lives. The Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, looking back actually on events in the history of Israel, that prosperity can produce complacency. So he says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So, I, I, I don't know your heart. I, I know some of you well, some of you better than others. You don't really know me that well. My family do, to their great tolerance and faith. But, how are you getting on? Who are you relying on? You see, the test comes when your circumstances begin to shift from prosperity to adversity. During prosperity, you can just be drifting away from God. And then suddenly a big crisis comes. Now, how you handle the crisis will reveal where your reliance lies. King Asa was tested and found wanting, and the grass took a sharp nosedive. However, it is not beyond recovery. Acer is not beyond recovery. You and I, no matter how far you have strayed from God this morning, maybe you used to walk with God closely, and you've come into Charlotte Chapel on this last Sunday of the year, and you look back and think, I used to walk so closely with God, I'm miles away now, there is no hope for me. Yes, there is, because God, God wants to turn your life around. So how does he do it? Well, he speaks to you. He sends his word to you. And this is what he does with Asa. Unfortunately, we see a second downward step on the part of Asa. A reliance on human wisdom is followed by a rejection of the word of God. Let's read on, verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer, the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram, and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans, previous crisis, years ago, a mighty army with great numbers and chariots and horsemen, yet... When you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord, this is a wonderful verse, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. Now, what's the response? Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him into prison. It's interesting to contrast the previous chapters, the early part of his reign with the later part of his reign and the crisis he faced then. In that earlier crisis from North Africa, when these armies from Libya and Cush had advanced, he had thrown himself completely on God. He had experienced a great success. Okay, here's another crisis from the north this time. What does he do? He relies on human wisdom and he experiences great success the outcome is very similar. Both strategies seem to work. So, who would know the difference? If you'd been a normal, average member of the population in Judah, you'd have probably been rejoicing. No one would know the difference. Relying on God? Success. Relying on human wisdom? Military success. Just the same. Who would know the difference? Only the Lord. After the first success, the Lord sent a message through a prophet to him to encourage him and reassure him. Keep doing it and you'll experience God's blessing. 
After the second, he sent a prophet to challenge him and rebuke him. And Hanani the seer, the prophet, confronts the king with the word of the Lord, a message which strongly rebukes him for placing his reliance not on the Lord, but on the king of Syria. It's a message of rebuke for failing to trust the Lord. He reminds him of that previous occasion when as a result of reliance on the Lord, a vast army had been delivered into his hand. Now he says, you've missed the chance. You've forgotten about past victories. And the consequence of this foolish action is that Asa has forfeited the peace he and his people have enjoyed. From now on, you'll be at war, forfeiting the present peace. And all of this is the consequence of a heart that is not fully committed to the Lord. As Hanani reminds him, it's a heart problem. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. This is a great verse to learn, isn't it? Just think about it. In our world today, it says the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth. They're ranging through Charlotte Chapel. What's he looking for? People whose hearts are fully committed to him. And God sees our hearts. They're exposed to him. He sees behind the facade. He sees what no one else sees. Is your heart fully committed to the Lord? Asa's heart was not. And the Lord sent him a prophet to tell him so. In the previous crisis, the word of the Lord through a prophet had been a message of reassurance and Asa had gladly received it. Now in another crisis, the word of the Lord is a message of rebuke and Asa angrily rejects it. He was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him into prison. I want to say this to you. In both cases, both prophets spoke the word of the Lord and God's word comes to us always as a word of love. Even his rebukes are rebukes of love. If your heart is cold towards God this morning, if you are drifting away from God, if you are in spiritual decline, it is because the Lord loves you that he challenges you and me. I tell you this, the time to start really worrying is when you no longer hear God's word. I don't mean you're not sitting in Charlotte Chapel. Or you can be sitting here, I can even tell some people have got glazed expressions. The time to worry is when you hear the word of the Lord and it just glides over the surface of your thinking and you just carry on as normal. The time to be thankful is when God's word, the sword of his spirit, incisively cuts into our lives and shows up our real need shows up the state of our hearts. When you hear a word of rebuke from the Lord, maybe this morning God is speaking to you right now, despite the poverty of my preaching and preparation. Maybe God is speaking to you this morning, touching something in your life. Now, I want to tell you this. It's because the Lord loves you that he's challenging you. Because he doesn't want to see you going to decline. He wants you to be blessed and prosper and know his blessing in your life. When we hear his word of rebuke, it is a sign of love. It is an opportunity to change direction. Remember the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church in Laodicea. Complacent 
self-satisfied church. Well-known verses. They're actually written to Christians, to a church. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Change direction. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a word of rebuke written to a lukewarm church and to lukewarm Christians. If anyone hears my voice, maybe God is speaking to this morning. Sadly, Asa missed his chance and he rejected the word of the Lord. And the graph takes another downward turn. And inevitably, something follows on its heels. You can miss it. It's just at the end of chapter, uh, verse 10. He begins to repress or oppress the people. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. You see, he doesn't just stop with the prophet. He then moves on to the people. And I tell you this, when a person adopts the path of self-reliance, and adopts the maxim that the ends justifies the means, it's the start of a slippery slope in moral degeneration. When you reject the word of the Lord in one area in your life, it soon begins to affect, to infect other areas of your life as well. If you can imprison a prophet of the Lord for speaking God's word, it's no big deal to oppress other people for whatever reason there is an inevitable connection. Rejecting the word of the Lord in one area affects other areas of our lives. You see, at whatever point you disobey God, when God speaks to you, it touches your conscience, doesn't it? You feel it. Now, every time you reject the word of God, even in the smallest point, it begins to harden your conscience, to desensitize your alertness, your spiritual antenna to what is right and wrong. Your spiritual compass begins to read wrong. It doesn't quite read true north anymore. And it shifts away. And before you know where you are, down the road, it reads south instead of north. It's seen in other areas of your life. King Asa, this matter would early led his people in spiritual reform, called on them to follow the way of the Lord, now begins to abuse those same people. He is a man who is no longer at peace, no longer at peace, not just at war with his enemies, but at war with himself. And this, I would describe it as the pilgrim's regress. And it can be seen in the history of many a leader who began well, but finished badly. Closer at home, it can be seen, sadly, in many a Christian leader and many a Christian follower. So you wonder as you read the, the, the reports or hear the news, how, how could a Christian leader do that to his people? How could a professing Christian in business practice such dubious ethics on his competitors? How could a Christian father treat his family so badly? The answer is always, at some point, he or she rejected the word of the Lord. And it may seem to bear very little relationship with what doctors would call the presenting issue. But there is always a connection. You reject the word of the Lord in one area, other areas will inevitably follow. And that is what happened with King Asa. His life took another downward turn. But surely, you ask, surely things will turn round at the end. The novel will all come right in the end. 
But this is real life, as we see finally a refusal to seek the Lord. Look at the last few verses. Verse 11. The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. They buried him in the tomb that he'd cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid, laid him on a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honour. Three years pass, nothing seems to happen. As far as we know, the prophet is still in prison. The people are still being oppressed. However, although the mills of God may grind exceeding slow, they grind exceeding fine. And inevitably, in the end, you reap what you sow. Asa is afflicted with a disease in his feet. The kind of things biblical scholars spend their time doing is trying to work out what these kind of things are. There's huge articles about what the disease was, whether it was dropsy, gout, or some vascular disease that led to gangrene. It doesn't really matter, actually. It's not the real issue. The great tragedy is not the disease. No one's exempt from that kind of thing. The great tragedy is not the disease, but Asa's response to it. Look at verse 12. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. The ingrained habits of self-reliance had become so entrenched in his heart that he didn't seek the Lord at the end of his life. Take it from me as a pastor. People say, oh, so-and-so made a commitment years ago. I'm sure at the end of their life they'll turn back to the Lord. Don't count on it. It takes a miracle to turn your heart away and back. If you've lived a certain way all your life and gone away from God, some of you maybe made commitments to Christ years and years and years ago and you've been walking all your own way and somehow you think miraculously on your deathbed you're just going to suddenly turn it around and seek the Lord. I pray that you do. But I have to say from my own experience it's extremely unlikely. There's nothing wrong, by the way, with seeking help from physicians. The doctors in the congregation were glad to know that nothing out of business. Christians. But it's no substitute for, seeking the Lord, for not seeking the Lord. This was the man to whom the prophet had said, Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. He has forsaken the Lord, and now he is confirmed in his unbelief. It is a tragic end. The final low point of his life as he suffers for two more years before he finally dies. So what's the verdict on his life? Well, the human verdict is given in verse 14. They had a big celebration and they said, King Asa, wasn't he a great guy? And they built a big bonfire, perfumes. No doubt they all made big speeches about what a great guy he was. Never be taken in by newspaper obituaries or funeral orations. Only the Lord knows the full story. Sees the real state of our heart. So what is the divine verdict on Asa's life? Well, it's given actually right at the beginning of his life. Overall, the Bible says, he was a good king. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. But it was spoiled, marred, tragically, by the final years of his life. And it need not have been so. Now, the last thing I want you to do from this is to take false comfort. False comfort. 
And imagine that it doesn't matter how you finish your life. Oh, you say, I filled in a card, I made a commitment, something happened in the past, therefore, it doesn't matter, I know I'm away from God, I know I'm living my own life, but it doesn't really matter because it'll all turn out well in the end. All I can say is, and there are huge theological implications and I don't plan to go into them, all I can say is this, it's a very dangerous assumption to make. And it raises serious questions if you're a person who can say that kind of thing. And even if it were true, why would you want to spend the rest of your life going your own way instead of God's way? You think it's better? You think it's going to make you a better person? A better husband or wife or son or daughter or grandparent when you're older? Is it not better to follow the Lord's way instead of going your own way? So let me finish where I began. Almost done. I repeat the words I began with. The end of another year is a good time for stock taking. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, what progress you've made as a Christian during 2003. If you were to draw a graph of your life and your spiritual progress, which direction are you heading in? Upwards? Or downwards? Or have you plucked it out as a Christian? I want to tell you, there are only two possible alternatives. Which direction are you heading? Either upwardly. Here's the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life. Some great verses again. One thing I do, he says, despite all else he's done, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. I've not yet arrived, says Paul. Or Paul is saying, you've evangelized most of the Mediterranean world. You've done all these fantastic things for Christ. Surely you can look back, bask in the glory and at least take it easy. No, he says, I'm straining onwards, upwards, heavenwards for the call of God in Christ Jesus. Or are you heading on a downward trend? Away from God in spiritual decline. You see, there isn't a third alternative at all. You, you can't plateau out as a Christian. For if you drift, the current is so strong, you will inevitably drift away from God. Now this morning, maybe by God's grace, you and I are at stage two of those four steps. You're hearing the word of God however feebly through me, listen to what God is saying to you today at the end of 2003. How you respond to it today will help determine your destiny. So I conclude with the word of God written to Christians, referring again back to the people of Israel, the book of Hebrews, responding to God's word today. This is written to Christians. And with this I finish. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said, quoting back to the Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Beware of the danger of spiritual decline. Let's pray together.